insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to Triple I Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. our last formative assessment for Fundamentals of Instruction class. In today's podcast, we will be going over our assigned chapter with a couple pause to ponder questions, and then we will be opening up the floor to our guest speaker. This week, we covered chapter four of the textbook, Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning, Classroom Practices for Student Success, Second Edition, by Cherokee Holly. As well, during the second half of today's podcast, we're going to be having our first special guest interview. The first question is on page 124 and relates to figure 4.1, Cronbach's dimensions of knowing a word. This is a table that illustrates the dimensions of knowing a word and their descriptions. The table states that the first dimension is generalization, which is the ability to define a word. The second dimension is application. This is the ability to select or recognize a situation appropriately. Then we have breadth, the ability to apply multiple meanings. Precision comes after. Precision is the ability to apply a term correctly to all situations and to recognize inappropriate use. Lastly, there's availability, meaning ability to actually use the word. The pause to ponder asks, what dimension of knowing a word do you usually aim for in your instruction? Which dimension do you think your students usually achieve? So when I was thinking about this chart and what I would aim for personally as instruction and what resonates with me the most is application, the ability to select or recognize a situation appropriately for the vocabulary. The one I think that the students usually try to achieve is generalization, to be able to define a word because I think they use the word in the context which they understand the most and I think their generalization of that word is the best that they would fully understand. For me, I like application, but I think best to suit them is generalization. And I think ideally precision or availability should be aimed for. Precision because, as we've discussed numerous times now on this podcast, but it keeps coming to mind, the fact that sometimes vocabulary is used inaccurately in a way that can be harmful or can just build upon misconceptions. Fake news. Yeah. And so precision was one, and then availability, which was the, they talked about a lot in this chapter owning a word, being able to use it as you wanted and in a way that was meaningful to you. That was part of availability. And I think that was really important, but I think they have to go hand in hand because you could own a word and own it wrong. Yes. There's many different definitions for certain words. Yes. That can be used in different contexts. As they talk about with AAVE. Mm-hmm. I generally find that when I'm working with junior kindergartners, which is the only place that I've really taught besides preschool, is aiming for precision. Because I think that the ability to understand a word in the appropriate context and the appropriate situation shows a really great level of understanding. And then it's really synonymous with availability. True. Because if they really understand where, when, how this word or this vocabulary should be used, 
then eventually they should be able to utilize it within these situations. But then that also leads to the second part of the question, which is the, which dimension do you think your students usually achieve? And I think that depending on the kid in particular, Mm -hmm. they're usually reaching somewhere around that availability only because when you're trying to get them to the precision part, then you're not only having them work on understanding, but you're also modeling the language. So they're hearing it and it's around them. And I feel like children start understanding because they continuously hear things being used and that's what like my thought about that was was using the word and eventually definition stuff later down the road but I want them to be accessible at least knowing how to use the word in a context that is relevant to them and most of the time it does have a definition attached to it that is very clear but there are certain things with culturally appropriateness that could it could be different it could sound different to them it could be different and that's also acceptable because it's that definition of their culture so I think just so that they're aware and ability to use the language is the goal to achieve Right. from my personal perspective. And I think I got a little bit cynical with this question. And it was like, which dimension do you think students usually achieve? So it says your students, but I haven't taught a class. So I was thinking about primarily my high school experience. And what came to my mind was a biology course. And there's a lot of vocabulary, but I think it stopped at application because mm-hmm. I can tell you that the mitochondria was the powerhouse of the cell. That's about it. I have no You're just recollection of, of connection. The definition. Yeah. You're not actually mm-hmm. you the context of which the definition is being used. Yeah, I can tell you that in the textbook the organelle was purple, but I seriously doubt in reality that it's purple. So that's my knowledge pretty much ends at it being the powerhouse of the cell. And that was because that was the specific words used, not because I owned that definition by any means. And so that's where, from a cynical view, and with it being task-based learning and not learning with the intent of gaining knowledge, when you're just checking a box, all you need to know is that one line. Instead of the full understanding of the grasp of the concept. Like you're just getting the definition, not the actual, not application for this specific, but an application of that word and understanding how that word is fully used. Like the mitochondria does more than just be the powerhouse of the cell. It does, has an exchanges with other parts of the cell itself. Right. I could identify it on a multiple choice test, but I couldn't write about it. The second pause of ponder found on page 129 lists the following three questions. What vocabulary development strategies do you use with your students successfully? Number two, how do your strategies compare to the ones mentioned in this book? Three, what is your favorite professional source for ideas about teaching vocabulary? In what ways have you found it helpful? In what ways does the source support concepts in culturally and linguistically responsive teaching? So I'm going to be honest, my thoughts around vocabulary development strategies has mostly started this term. I haven't thought about it a ton outside of the academic setting. And as such, I just really latched on to this idea of personal thesauruses or dictionaries, in part because I think a lot of kids do this formally or informally on their own. I remember us having very in-depth lessons and then stepping out of the classroom and not referring to our textbooks, not referring to anything, but talking to one another about our personal definitions. And if that had been integrated into the classroom, I think it would be wonderful. I also wonder if it could be adapted to small groups as well, like I said, with that outside class interaction. If you were to bring that into the classroom and have them build small group dictionaries with their personal ones in there and then you can see the different cultural relevancies or you can see the different ways different thinkers think about stuff. And I think that would broaden their understanding even further. I really liked the Fourier method. 
how they have the word, the picture, and the definition all within it. But then I was thinking about how I used to learn vocabulary was like through a vocabulary test that had like a definition in it. And I was like, that didn't really work for me. But if I had that model with the word, the picture, the definition, as well as the word in other languages, Mm -hmm. incorporating other people's culture into it, then that would have meant more. And the words that I learned would have been more culturally appropriate for our area and for the people that we serviced. Because when I was younger, I lived in a primarily black neighborhood that had a lot of rich culture within that neighborhood, but it was never brought into the classroom. There was none of that language that came into that classroom. And you could totally tell about the investment of the children within the classroom. And that was one of the ways I was thinking about helping. I'm not a teacher yet. And it's really hard to teach vocabulary to preschoolers besides just repetition of the word and putting the word up and then having things connect to it. But taking that and moving that into older years and using the examples I just stated to help them still progress their vocabulary, but still Mm -hmm. add that cultural piece to it. Because I really want to foster that culturalness inside my classroom. The strategies that I used, because I was in a junior K classroom, but also before and after school, and then during the summer, it was an educational setting still, is starting out by just seeing if students even know what the word means, then using things like word walls, where not only was it at the wall and where they could see it, but you could walk over, they could take the word out and they could use it if they wanted to see how it was spelled. And it was just accessible to them. Sentence starters, sentence building activities where you would take some of the words out, but create a sentence around that. So there's a lot of different things. But then also when it came to some of my ELL students, I didn't have a lot, but I did have a few and they were also languages that I didn't know. I would obtain a lot of the keywords from home that I was planning to use throughout transitions or just what things are, what we need, things that related to schedule, things like that, and using them both in the home language by getting that information from the parents, asking them how do you pronounce this, and then writing it down for myself phonetically and using that as well as English for association purposes. And then just writing the words for common objects in the home languages as well. Those were sort of the strategies that I ended up using. And then for how do your strategies compare to the ones mentioned in the book? I think that some of them line up, but I think that the book goes much further into (laughs) everything where I just, I need to take all of this in Mm -hmm. and really look at is my information related to CLR? I mean, I know that some of it is, but how can I go in deeper? How can I make that have more modalities Mm -hmm. when it comes to that? Because yes, you can see the word, but can you see the picture? Can you see this? So there weren't as many of those things. I wasn't using necessarily videos either. So I know that I need to do more than what I was doing before, but it was a good start. Yes. And I think something important to note on that front as well that the textbook made a point of and made a lot of sense to me was vocab in relation to CLR, as we were learning about it, is a pedagogy. It's not a program. So you need to apply it to a pre-existing program that works with it. It can't stand on its own because it doesn't have the structural information for it. It's much more a mode of thinking, which I kind of liked because you could be given a rough curriculum by a district and still be able to apply this. That's true. Yeah, you could have that sur- the curriculum be the surface level, but you're bringing all the extra in that it makes it CLR, and then so you embed it to be actually deeper in that iceberg. 
Yes. Like, mm-hmm. Not below, just below the surface, but deep down and underneath it all. It's like if they give you an ugly Christmas tree and you have a lot of ornaments. Or th- enough lipstick to make that pig beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last part was that favorite professional source. So my favorite professional source for ideas, it's not necessarily a favorite. It is just something that I had and utilized and was the only professional source that came to mind at the time. So it's a book called Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons by Siegfried Engelman. And it was given to me by a mom of one of my students who was in my junior kindergarten class, but this mom is also an elementary school teacher. So it was allowed to come into the classroom and be part of additional learning. So we would do it during downtime. We would have individual lessons for each child. So during these group things going on, we would pull a child out and we would do it individually with each one. And they actually really loved the time with us because they got us for ourselves Mm -hmm. and they, they were just really involved in the learning because they were excited to be with their teacher. So what it really involved is learning things like phenomes, how to blend, writing, learning the sound of the letter, scaffolding the harder words and sounds, understanding the short and long sounds, things like that, et cetera, et cetera. So good book. I mean, it was a great way to learn what I did and didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. It gave me ideas on how I might utilize the information in the book because I started out by by the letter and doing what it told me to do. Mm-hmm. And then slowly I was like, this isn't what I want to do. This is boring. And not to say that it isn't really great because it did help them and I saw them making progress. But I started to tailor it to my own lessons and mm-hmm. and actually get more culturally and linguistically responsive because I was saying, why am I going to use this word when I could use this word? And how can I change it to make it more interesting for them? What are they interested in? What word do they want to learn? And how can I use this information in this book to be able to also keep them interested so that they keep wanting to learn to read? Yes. So what I used as a preschool teacher was uh, Hegarty Phonemic Awareness. And it really broke down vocabulary and English language into phenomes. There was blending, there was breaking down words, constructing them back, compound words. They also provided a poem at the end of each, or not a poem, but a rhyme. Mm -hmm. So to help with that rhyming aspect. And what was really awesome about this curriculum was the curriculum was interchangeable. The structure was still there, but you Mm -hmm. could change into any word you wanted and create it. It was more of the action of it. So if we were blending, we would say like sandbox, sandbox, which would Mm -hmm. come together. You can change that for whatever you wanted. So you could adapt it to words that are actually relevant to your students and go through that vocabulary. It's more phonemic awareness, like vernacular, Mm -hmm. but it's still a way and a professional resource that I used for children. And they were very young, so they they were still gathering all the tools they needed to actually understand what vocabulary actually meant. But it was still one of the resources that I used since I can't use the book that we are currently reading. Because that would be cheating. So I had to choose something different. Right. Those both sound amazing. I'm not working in a preschool classroom. But something I remember using a lot actually in my Spanish classes was Quizlet. I don't know if that counts as professional. But it helped with vocab development. And something I liked about it is you can have your own account and create your own flashcards. Our teacher created the sets for us at the time but you would create them with a word and the definition and then you could go through the flashcard and either answer that they would give you the term and you have to answer with the word or vice versa for us it was just a lot of translation 
but it also had quizzes and games on there and matching stuff and a lot of multimodal ways to do it because there was the visual aspect or they had the text-to-speech aspect. And something I really liked about it as well was even on those flashcard ones where you had to type in your answer, it might tell you you're wrong if you spelled it correctly, but you could have the settings where you could pretty much override that, which I think could be important as far as being responsive to your different levels of learners because they might get the concept from an audio, like they know how to say the word, but they don't know how to spell it. And so that would still make it so they could learn the content without spelling, making or breaking it. And here we are to close it off with our reflection guide, which is what do you think of when you encounter the term academic vocabulary? Do you agree or disagree with the following statements about vocabulary development? Record A for agree and D for disagree on each line. So back to the first one as with our anticipation guide. Effective vocabulary instruction relies on students memorizing definitions. I disagreed again with that one. Yep, That's I still agree. very firm about how I believe in that one. Yeah. I disagreed as well. It was nice to see it in an academic context, though. It reaffirmed mm-hmm. personal beliefs. Yep. Stayed the same. Disagree. Mm-hmm. The next one was, the purpose of culturally responsive vocabulary instruction is to enable students to recognize relationships between their personal vocabularies for concepts and the academic terms for these concepts. I agreed, like I did last <laughs> time, because it's very prominent in the text that that's, what it's, that that's the purpose. Yep. Yes. Stayed the same as well. Agreed. I agreed. Yeah, I agreed as well. It was That was the key idea. Of course, I learned more, and so I think this was a very short concept of it, but yes. And our third one is students acquire new vocabulary primarily through indirect approaches, such as reading widely. I stayed the same with disagree. I also stayed at disagree just because of it's not primarily what is needed. Same here. The text really touched on how vocabulary, especially with ELL learners and students from different cultures, vocabulary needs to be intentional. Mm-hmm. And then for our second to last one, teachers should focus primarily on explicit teaching of vocabulary rather than relying on incidental approaches. I would say, well, I can't remember what I said the first time. You said disagree the first time. And I still disagree with it. I switched to disagree just because of that primarily, because I, I truly think that there should be a healthy mix. Yeah, and I leaning towards disagree where last time I was leaning towards agree but really still in the middle about it I think primarily just means a little bit more than a little bit more than the other option but I think as you were saying they both need to be blended I just think explicit teaching sets that intention which we talked about before so that's why I still agree a bit and then our final one the context in which students encounter words affect their interest in words and their motivation to expand their vocabularies and I state the same with agree And I also agree. Yes, this was so prominent throughout the text. Yes. For our guest speaker, we invited our Fundamentals of Instruction professor, Dr. Jessica Masterson. We spoke about her educational backstory and how CLR helped her in her journey. Then we opened it up to some specific questions that we had for her. How did you enrich vocabulary in your elementary or middle school classrooms in the past? And what would you do differently now? 
Thank you so much for this question. I've been thinking about it ever since you shared it with me. <laughs> and I mean, and also reviewing the Holly chapter, you know, I'm giving myself points for things that I did do. So we did a lot of Freyer model for definitions of new words, right? So making connections, drawing pictures, giving them multiple opportunities to use the word and to see it, to encounter it, right? That matters a whole lot. I think what I wish I would have done is to really fully engage students multiple languages in vocabulary instruction as Holly suggests. So thinking about, you know, what's your word for this concept or a word that you know that's like this concept. Mm -hmm. I, I see myself when I think about my teaching, which was a while, a long time ago, mm -hmm. kind of taking steps in that direction. For instance, we did daily journals in my class. Mm -hmm. I'd give them a prompt. And on Fridays, it was always a free write Friday. And it was very much you choose your own topic, but also choose your own language or dialect slang like this is just kind of your space and I wish I had done more to message that those language forms those languages those dialects are every bit as valid and rich as any standard form of yeah. language I wish I had made that connection a bit right. more front and center mm -hmm. And I wish I would have used those languages in the service of instruction far more. And I love Holly. I mean, Holly has some kind of wacky metaphors once in a while, but I do appreciate that he's giving some pretty clear ways to kind of bridge that gap between like, your language is awesome, but here we speak standard English, right? And instead the vabbing, validating, affirming, mm -hmm. bridging and building. Like, mm -hmm. let's use your language. Let's use your entire linguistic repertoire mm -hmm. in service of learning some of these academic words that will serve you well down the line. How did you navigate, if they wrote in different languages, how did you navigate understanding the context which was in those journals? Yeah, this is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Often it was hard. I mean, and I told them too. It was a space sometimes for students who were learning another language, whether that was a heritage language of their own or just, I want to learn Japanese. I'm going to try writing out some words. I would write back to them in their journals, usually just once or twice a quarter because as there's you all know, there's a lot, there's a lot. right? Yeah. I would have them star entries that they really wanted me to take a look at so I could give kind of more pointed feedback. But for those, yeah, sometimes I could understand, for instance, what's commonly called pidgin, but I think is formerly known as Hawaiian Creole English, yeah, was a, a very popular form that some students didn't even know you could write in. They'd never seen it oh. written before. And that was, mm -hmm. again, where the poets and the, uh, the artists and the writers from the local area who would use pidgin in their writing was like transformative for some students. Like, oh my goodness, like I'm reading this and it sounds like a language I've never seen written, but that I know that really feels familiar to me. So, and, and that's pretty easy to decode for a standard English speaker, I'd say in most contexts. But yeah, there was a lot where I didn't know. And did you integrate the languages that they were using in those journals between all of the students or was it mostly tailored to that student? Or did you, you know, did you bring it in saying, and you know, this person is learning Japanese, this person is learning this. How can we learn all these different things? Hmm. Or no. was it individual? I'm, I wish I had. <laughs> I really wish I had. And again, thinking about kind of woulda, coulda, and shoulda, those, the journals, the promise that I made for them was that well, anything that they wrote, I wouldn't share unless it was kind of a mandatory reporting situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I did want them to feel just totally comfortable. But again, I could have rethought that promise and, and, you know, we could have had conversations mm -hmm. about, hey, sometimes I see some really cool stuff. In fact, often I see some really cool stuff in your journals that I would love to actually share with others with your permission. Is that okay? But I felt because I had already made 
that promise, that, mm -hmm. that very clear line, like this is your right. space, that I couldn't. Yeah, I think that maybe seeing what they were interested in and saying, how can I take that out? Not from your oh, journal, sure. but from something else, from a book, from a whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Bring in an artist who actually does. Oh, totally. So that could be something that we could yes. end up doing because we're using these journals as learning our students. And so if they have these interests, we could probably take that from their journal and say, how can I bring this into the classroom, but not sure. read their journal out because mm -hmm. I promise not to say anything about it. Or yes. they like to mention something that is something that needs to be brought awareness to, but not in a context of like, it needs to be reported, but we can, you can put books that are related mm -hmm. to that topic in your library yes. and stuff like that can like, subtly to like mm -hmm. help yes. them process whatever they're feeling. Like if let's say they were dating someone and broke up with their significant loss and grievance, into your reading mm -hmm. section so that they have those resources as well. For sure. Um, and I really liked your comment about the Frayer's model about mm -hmm. including the words in their language into that. So like the examples like sonification, mm -hmm. you can easily have the other languages underneath it and have them even, mm -hmm. if you know how to write it, you can write it like let's say it's Japanese or something that I don't know how to write and I would butcher. But mm -hmm. even attempting it still shows my connection with the student. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, to that point, I have so many thoughts going on right now, but um, <laughs> to that point, I don't know if in Dr. Slavic's class, you all have talked a little about dual language programs a little bit. We, we mentioned know. it a little okay. bit. I mean, yeah. I think those are kind of the next frontier for education. And the idea, I mean, there are multiple ideas, but one idea with dual language education I think is really cool is why not equip students with academic language and fluency not only in standard English, but in a heritage language or a second language. So my mother grew up speaking Spanish, but once she got to school, it was verboten. Like they were literally slapped on the wrist with a ruler if they were oh, wow. caught speaking Spanish. Um, so yeah, the takeaway for my mom and her six siblings was that Spanish was a liability and also that it, just, it wasn't worthy of education. And so none of the cousins in my first generation, of which there are like 30 of us, <laughs> grew up speaking Spanish because our parents kind of internalized this idea that that would actually set us back. And now, of course, I wish I had, you know, Spanish on lock. But also my mom, you know, recently, sorry, <laughs> recently she, before she passed, obviously, she was a bureaucrat for the state of Oregon and just was like, you know, looking at insurance plans, compliance, that kind of thing, and just didn't love it. And she was thinking, what if I could be a translator? She speaks Spanish. Oh, yeah. The issue is that she didn't speak academic Spanish. Right. She didn't even get any training in how to write Spanish, right? Because right? the moment she hit school, it was entirely English only. It was pulled away from her. her absolutely, absolutely. Her. And man, I think about that example a lot. It's just the disservice that we're doing students. So to your point about yeah. personification, right? I mean, potentially even teaching those terms so that that academic vocabulary is part of their education in multiple languages. Yeah, and I, I love that because I don't. We don't want to ever lose a sense of their culture, their mm -hmm. language, and make it feel inferior at all because it's not. It's just mm -hmm. as enhancing and yes. powerful as English. And I don't want, like as a English speaker, and I don't, I only speak English, I have ASL, which is still a form of English. I don't want to inhibit my students from taking their language and progressing forward with it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that I have to incorporate that into the classroom. And I really love the Frey model and how you're speaking about still incorporating that. And I don't want that ever lost. And mm -hmm. so, I really, I love that. There's an article that we were reading, and I think it was for Shanine's class, where 
a grandfather was saying, I will not learn English. Yes. Or I will not speak oh, yeah. English mm -hmm. because I don't want my grandchildren to lose that. Mm -hmm. And if they have no reason to speak it, then they're not going to. So I'm keeping this and I'm not learning and I'm not doing it because mm -hmm. I need to keep my culture. And I was like, that's really, well, yes, powerful, but also really sad that he would even think that that would be something that would happen. But mm -hmm. it's because it does. It does, mm -hmm. because it, it yes. yeah. 100% it does. I can remember even when I was younger, there was Spanish in my school, but they spoke it in passing, but it was only English being taught in the classroom. It was all, there would be a random Spanish book that would be mm -hmm. incorporated at, in the earlier years, but after that, it was lost. It yeah. was, like, you would never hear a teacher speaking in Spanish or mm -hmm. anything like that to help incorporate students. It was so trivial, but I remember teachers being upset about the idea of kids speaking Spanish outside the classroom because then we can't understand you, and what if they're disrespecting me, or what if they're talking to I'm like, you're an adult worrying about what the seven-year-old's saying about you. And, and they're talking about lunch right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. And also, there are plenty of ways of disrespecting you in English. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you still probably wouldn't catch on to. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, can I say one more thing too, Jamie, mm -hmm. just about kind of your point about those journals. I do want to say one thing I did, and this is, sorry if this is a, a bird walk, but essentially I used to have my students like look at a piece of art and reflect on that every Monday. And very, very long story short, essentially it was pointed out to me by a seventh grader, Kaylee. I will always remember her. She was like, we never see people in, in this art that looks like us. And it was a huge, mm -hmm. huge wow moment mm -hmm. for me. You know, and all of us in our journeys will be called out, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And it hurts sometimes, oh, right? Yeah. Especially someone like me who, you know, I'm thinking that I got it, you know, I'm that I have achieved wokeness. Little <laughs> did I realize that wokeness is a journey, not a destination. It is a journey. <laughs> so, so her saying that really made me think. And a change that I did make was that every Monday afterwards, students actually took turns bringing in an art piece of some Ooh. sort. It could be a song, it could be a painting, it could be a poem. Sometimes it was just a quote that they liked, their seventh grade and eighth grade feelings <laughs> about love or something. Uh, yes. Yes. And they would so. provide a prompt and then they would facilitate a discussion around it. And then mm -hmm. in that way, right, we were able to bring in just a wide variety of modalities that these were all pieces that had some significance to my students. And then it was also cool that they got to have a conversation and discussion with their with their fellow students. It was awesome. Right. You flipped the classroom. Yeah. I <laughs> flipped it. it. Did they submit it ahead of time? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. I was worried yeah. about yeah, theory. <laughs> Generally the week before, okay. I would tap them on the shoulder. I'm like, oh, what, what's it going to be? Mm -hmm. Wait, I need, to, I, need to, <laughs> I need to see it. Just, like, yeah. Yeah. just make sure it's appropriate. Right. <laughs> Jessica, what would be your top suggestion as a teacher going into this field? My top suggestion for a teacher going into this field, hmm. It's always hard for me to think about one specific idea. Thinking about you, and this is helpful, just kind of getting, since I know you all, I want you to never forget that what you are doing is changing the world. And that is a lot of pressure some days, right? Mm -hmm. It's very heavy. But I hope that with that responsibility, it will help you guide your actions. It will help you realize that 
the work that you're doing to an extent it's about you but it's also not about you it's not about me it's mm -hmm. not about any of us right it's about our students it's about our world <laughs> it's about mm -hmm. making this a better place i would urge you to not get discouraged either and there will be there will be roadblocks and obstacles a hundred percent period also when you get into schools i want to prepare you for the the possibility that the kind of teaching you're being asked to do is not the kind of teaching that you've learned in this program or that you personally feel is in the best interest of your students. And I want you to find a way to persevere nonetheless. Teaching, I think, is a, can be a very sort of normalizing profession. You know, we are trying to get students up to a kind of a cut score, a normalizing benchmark. There's a lot of curriculum out there that's trying to standardize absolutely everything. You will encounter all of that. My top tip for you all is to listen to the voice inside of you and to, to make, make changes accordingly, to not get sucked into sort of the normy vibes of schools, as you probably have known people who have, right? Mm -hmm. It's so easy to just kind of take on that school culture and say, okay, all right, just I'm just going to go flow. with the flow, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to do that because I think there'll be really amazing things that happen when you don't. <laughs> I think you specifically were talking about that when you're talking about in class, getting curriculum that you're required to teach, yes. like you had been talking about before, but you said, I took that and I taught that curriculum, but then I brought in. You adapted it. Yes. To my, the me, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I don't think that this is covering enough information and I don't, you didn't think it was along with CLR, you know, Absolutely. it's just here's information and it's an information dump. Here's yes. things to memorize, basically. Totally. Here's a worksheet to fill out. Here are 3,000 worksheets to fill out. It seems like there's no shortage ever. Absolutely. I want you to, I guess this is a lot of advice here that I'm just sharing, but I also want you to trust your professional judgment in those moments when you're looking, you're staring down a lesson plan that you know is not going to be engaging, that has no semblance or reflection at all of your students or their communities, or perhaps the present moment. Trust your professional judgment. Rather, I, again, it's so easy to think, well, I don't know. You know, I'm new at this. This tells me to do it this way, so I'm going to do it this way. Mm -hmm. I'm here to say, nah, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> you already know better than any canned lesson program that you will encounter. Trust that. One of our teachers had explained that we, when we go in, we should try to just to keep going and until we get some footing to start making like changes. But we, when we first go in, we can make certain changes that adapted to our students. We don't necessarily need to change the whole cog or that's for later on years after we're tenured, but like changing what we can in our classroom to help mm -hmm. us best facilitate the students. You were saying that we do our change in the world. I kind of imagine us like we are a pebble and when we throw it into the teaching, we create all those ripple effects that go on for generations. Because mm -hmm. in reality, those students we teach will be then become parents and then teach their students, their children. And then that lesson will keep going on. So in reality, we will we will impact a lot of a lot of individuals. And I really sure. like that, and I really appreciate all your advice. I'm glad. Tell me more about your middle level experience. What drove you towards middle school? There's a certain fear or stereotype or intimidation I've seen when we talk about it in our cohort surrounding middle school. What's your response to that? And do you have any tips as someone looking into that age range? Thank you so much for this question. I love it. Okay, so real talk, when I was in seventh grade, mm -hmm. 
I remember in one particular English classroom, just kind of looking around at my peers who were engaged in all kinds of mayhem and <laughs> thinking to myself, I will never teach seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then lo and behold, I ended up being a seventh and eighth grade teacher. So with Teacher America, there was like kind of zero choice. I knew I wanted to do secondary, but the interview that I got was at an intermediate school, which in Hawaii is just seventh and eighth grade. And I said, okay, I'm gonna make the most of it. And let me tell you, those ages are my favorite. They are so fun. Yes, there are hormones coming into play. There's a lot of developmental work that happens. And I mean, if you read any literature around uh, middle level studies, it's really interesting. Basically, the idea is just that we kind of treat them like young adults uh, or like little adults, adults mm -hmm. in like little bodies. And then we get frustrated when it's like, oh no, they're in a space between childhood and older adolescence or adulthood. And a lot, I mean, honestly, even in the way that we break up and organize programs, we have elementary, usually like K-6, and then secondary, which technically kind of includes middle school, but the focus is on high school and mm -hmm. upper grades. And so middle schoolers get the short shrift. Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of people, they end up in a middle school much like me. They're like, well, okay, I got this job. We'll figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. But I think attending to the developmental needs, including things like belonging, my goodness, mm -hmm. they want to belong. And a lot of the classroom community techniques that we do in our class are straight up ones that I did with seventh and eighth graders. And mm -hmm. it was fabulous. I am so thankful for my teaching experience for many reasons. One of them is that I learned what is possible. I have now a sense of what is possible for that age range, mm -hmm. which is really vulnerable discussions with one another in which we cry and yeah. We pass around Kleenexes and we link our personal experiences to larger themes, larger texts that we're reading. I know those students to be so capable of real, true, genuine thoughtfulness and criticality. They're also developmentally very interested in justice. So of course that works really well, right? Fairness, mm -hmm. what is fair? Right. I think we use those, we leverage those in service of educational aims this idea of fairness or the idea of belonging, inclusivity versus exclusivity. Those are all things that I think are, are right for us to use as educators. And I think recognizing, yes, indeed, they're going to make like off-color jokes here and there, mm -hmm. whatever, right? High schoolers do that too. Yeah. But you're there to teach them, mm -hmm. right? You're there to, to help guide them. Like maybe this joke wasn't appropriate for right now. And I think you can do so much by setting a really positive, welcoming tone. I mean, I had my students write, you know, shout outs to each other all the time. We did this really fun thing. Actually, we will do it for our class too. Or basically like you give every student a note card mm -hmm. and they write their name on it and you take them all back and then you redistribute them randomly. And then you get someone else's card, you see their name and then you write three sentences. Like this person oh, is so yeah. great at blank. I'm glad I this person that. is in our class yes. because blank. And then you as a teacher you collect them all back and then just throughout the year, sometimes on a Friday or whatever, when we have a few minutes extra, I'll pull out a card and I'll, it's like a guessing game. You know, I cover the name and I say, they just read the sentences. This person is really great at listening. Like, who do we think it is? Oh, and even if it's not the right person right away, then it's like, wow, how lovely that you're also a good listener or whatever. I mean, I did that seventh and eighth grade. And I think some people's experiences with that grade level, maybe you could never imagine something like that, but I did it, it worked, it was awesome. And man, those students still, right to me to this day. And it's, it's pretty awesome. 
That's like Kim's mystery person. Mystery member. Yeah. Mystery member. Yeah. Oh. She had like interviewed all our questions and now she like says, this person likes red. This person like, it's like favorite movie is 007 and stuff like that. And she does that. But I really liked how you said they're in the in-between. Kind of reminds me of when I was in middle school. Like we were treated like we were supposed to be in high school. Mm-hmm. Like we, were, yes. we had all these new classes. We all had to get to point A to point B by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we weren't in class anymore. We were like had these different one class periods one through seven but we were also expected we were expected to be high schoolers but still just got freshly out of <laughs> elementary school with that kind of younger adolescent feeling yes. mm-hmm. and then just overnight supposed to have like over a summer supposed to have changed and that understanding and that nurturing and caring for like the emotion side of that kind of got lost Yes. And, and then you're chastised yeah. for being immature or for not stepping up to the plate when, as you said, right now you have seven classes with seven teachers, all of whom have different expectations, different grading policies, different kind of homework rhythms overnight, right? And then I remember us being like very social, like we wanted justice for everything. Because I remember we talked about the Holocaust and we're like, why didn't all these people mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z happen yeah. to them? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we had the most genuine discussions in middle school. Just because mm-hmm. it was open, there wasn't a lot of... Everyone said it was on their mind without the thought of someone else. Yeah. So it wasn't... It was just raw, and it was it was powerful. Yeah. So thank you for bringing up those thoughts back, because I also had the same experience at middle mm. school. Like, I would not be teaching <laughs> ever <laughs> in middle school. But your words made all those memories come back. I'm like, oh, yeah, we did have some really powerful conversations. Mm-hmm. But still, that expectation wasn't always clear. There was no in-between. Either we were high schoolers Mm -hmm. or elementary kids. kids. So it was just, it was hard. hard. Totally. And I wonder, because we've talked about how there's that academic push to start acting like adults, you know? Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think that's part of what leads to them engaging in activities outside of school that's acting like adults? Because, I don't know, I feel Mm -hmm. like dating substances like all these different things get so blown up in middle school and I'm like what are you guys talking about you were 10 like two minutes ago you know (laughs) yeah oh that's such an interesting point Annabelle I don't even know that I've thought about it that way I I mean I see those activities also just kind of in the context of like boundary pushing and figuring out kind of what are the limits also who am I which is a huge question right that starts to to come to pass (laughs) around that age there is this huge irony where you're right like we're telling them like you gotta be an adult i feel like i have said this before as a teacher and maybe you all have heard this too which is like whatever if i'm teaching seventh graders i'd say well this won't stand in eighth grade (laughs) or you know in high school teachers saying well this won't stand in college Mm -hmm. it does (laughs) right way more stands in college yeah completely and it makes me i mean my so my sister is a junior at uo so she shares memes about exactly to this point, right? Where like college professor is like, hey guys, not coming in, my car won't start. And yeah. then like, that's the, the end of it, right? Even though all these high school teachers were like, you will, you will fail out of college if you're not- If you you're know, not there every single day right? on time, yes. early, uh, prepared. on you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about how the real, quote unquote, real world mm-hmm. is actually softer, a softer place in some ways than the place that we create for our young students, for our kids. Middle school being, I think, again, the place where that really ramps up. Yes. And I think that's such a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So no longer, I mean, I I hope to never say like in the real world or like, or or to kind of put those sort of false standards in place for students, right? When again, they don't necessarily exist beyond because that just Mm -hmm. seems unnecessarily cruel in a lot of ways. 
I think I'll always remember my experience here and the, not, I wouldn't say leniency, but the understanding the professor, the teachers have with us and take that understanding and transform it into my classroom. Like yeah. things happen in our life. It might be easier to get all the papers in on time to be able to grade them versus like not accepting any late work or anything like that. But um, like go in with the understanding that life happens. Right, and why not and, go in with And they need, they just need to have a caring adult. And sometimes they mm -hmm. just may not be up for learning that day. Mm -hmm. And they just need someone just be nurturing. And, and we have days like that. I have, oh, I I have guess. plenty of days <laughs> like that. You just wake up and you're like, all the stuff I was going to do, I'm not going to get done today. Yeah, I'm not adulting today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that taking our needs and our emotions and our lives to being a parent, being someone who's working through college, being whatever it may be, being someone who's taking care of parents at home, taking that into account and realizing, again, I guess, like we do with our students, their culture, letting yes. that come into our classroom is something that, that I see much more in college than I did in any other place. Yeah. And it's funny because all of those places are supposed to prepare you for this, right? Right. Hmm. I feel like it should have been swapped. Yes. All our culture should have brought it into elementary yeah. school. We should have been taught about the Why world. not be softer, yeah. right? Why not be swapped. kinder? Just every place right. be sort of like this yeah. rather than it being no, so yeah, hard I in mean, one and so yes, different totally. in another one. It needs to have that balance throughout all of the grades, starting at the preschool all the way up to the college, mm, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. Just imagine the, the attention level of all the students that have the their culture and their interest inside the classroom. That's what and where they, they like, yes. That harmony. Right. And I feel like if we had that, there'd be less of the behaviors that we see now because there'll be more of them being totally. intrinsic. Oh, can I ever say the word? Intrinsic? Intrinsically involved yes. and motivated. It makes me worried about, well, hopeful, but also worried about the students I learned relatively well in a traditional classroom, but the ones who didn't or didn't feel seen. Mm -hmm. And now there's like this, this uh, imagined gateway to college, right? And there is like a huge barrier, but the fact that once we got here, it's this respect is given and all these things are given. Yes. That stopped a lot of kids from even getting here, you know? Oh gosh. Mm -hmm. Right. And to think about how some of those folks that you went to school with might have really thrived in yes. this environment. Yeah. Yes. And yet, right, there were barriers, there were gatekeepers yes. that prevented them. Ah, yeah. So when it comes to being a professor, what made you decide to make the switch from teaching children to instructing adults? I think a lot of that has to do with sort of the impact that we've talked about a, um, a little earlier. So I was, I was frustrated with all of these policy changes coming down the pipeline that I was then as a teacher, a classroom teacher, and the department head for English at my intermediate school enforced with or required to enforce among everybody. We're going to have this workbook. We're going to turn to page 35 on this day and we're all going to do it. Again, it just was totally out of step with everything that I had learned. My previous six years of teaching, uh, totally out of step with our unique context and all of the relationships that I had worked to build that I wanted to continue with local artists and writers. And I wanted a broader view. That was my first goal with graduate school. I wanted to kind of get more of a sense of the policy landscape. I wanted to get more of a sense of, of public education as it looks kind of across the US and maybe internationally as well. So that was like the first reason. The second reason was to potentially grow an impact, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, every student that you teach, right, you will impact in some way. 
And then teacher educators, it's kind of cool. It's like I'm hopefully having some sort of an impact on oh, all of you. Well, and then that will be passed on in some way in your own unique fashion and sense to your students who will then, I mean, it's just, it's huge, right? I talked earlier about how I don't have my theory of change fully worked out, but mm -hmm. I think that's a part of it, right? Yes. Teaching culturally and linguistically responsive pedagogy to awesome pre-service teachers who will then go on to enact it with their students, who will then succeed because their culture and their language were affirmed in school, who will then hopefully not be kicked out of school or they will not have the sense that school is not a place for me, which happens a lot, especially around middle school, right? Yes. But they will think, I can do this. This place is for me and people like me and I can succeed here. And that, to me, again, that's a part of how we change this world, how we change this country. Especially once they get older, they can help foster the change that they see is relevant to their lives. And yes. helping students become individually sound in their own beliefs, that they can also make that change. And yeah. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's it. So I just want to close off and tell you thank you for doing this for us. We really appreciate all of your time. and really giving us an insight into your teaching and, and your specific experiences. Thank you all so much for all of the work that you put into this and all of your ideas. Honestly, it is, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. Thank you. This episode concludes the formative assessments of our Fundamentals of Instruction class. We hope that you got some insight into what it is like as a student who is an aspiring teacher. Thank you for this amazing time with our class. We plan on using this podcast for other assignments, so please stay tuned. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.